everyone. Uh, welcome to Spirit Box. I hope you're all keeping well and keeping healthy, uh, both physically and mentally, out there in lockdown land. Now we're getting into the, what is it, week four now? Week three or four? Anyway, it's uh, it's not easy, but hopefully we'll have this thing resolved soon and we can start to get back to some kind of normality. And our next guest is is a very special guest, and I'm really, really delighted that he's he's with us uh, on the podcast. It's the brilliant Phil Hine. Um, if you're any way involved in in the occult, you'll you'll know who Phil Hine is. Um, but if you don't, he is an occultist of repute, and he's an author and a historian, amongst many other things. So in this episode, we cover ritual possession and overshadowing, his experiences with the goddess Kali and Baphomet. We discuss channeling, spiritualism, as subsets of possession, and some interesting experiences with theatrical improv. Uh, Phil has recently released his new book, Heinz Varieties, uh, Chaos and Beyond, uh, which we referred to a few times in the interview. Uh, the book is really a unique window into the life and spiritual journey of, of a master magician, so I really encourage you to um, pick that one up. Um, I will leave a link to the book in the show notes. Now, before we get into the show, just a quick plug for the podcast uh, itself. We have a Patreon. Um, there are three tiers. Uh, follow the link in the show notes for details. But in short, you can support the show and get more Spirit Box in your life. Um, and of course, some exclusive content. Great. That's enough for me. On with the show. Phil Hine is a British occultist, author, historian and lecturer. He's best known for his renowned work on chaos magic, but has been a significant figure in the UK pagan community and is well known for his research into tantric systems. Phil, thank you very much for joining us on the Spirit Box podcast and uh, hearty congratulations on, your, on the recent launch of your new book, Heinz Varieties. Thank you. So I'm very happy to have you on board uh, for the show. And um, I suppose kind of getting straight into it, we, we've had a, a bit of a back and forth in um in the run-up to this show and we well we met a couple of months ago um and we're you you told me about an experience you had at a hecate ritual you you uh, participated in could you can we get straight into it can you can you tell me about that again um yeah it was in a wiccan coven i was about 18 or 19 something like that and uh i i forget the actual basics of the ritual but it ended up with a with a high priestess of the coven being possessed by hikati that was my first experience of possession. Um, it was really quite frightening because her, her whole, her, her face changed, her, her kind of like bodily posture changed. And I was quite freaked out by it. I didn't, I didn't know how to react or, or what to do. Um, and I can, you know, I can, I've still even, this was the late seventies and even now I can call to mind her face and how it just looked totally not unhuman, but you know, very, very different to what to the person I knew. Wow! And I was really freaked out by it. And and uh, were there any? Um, that that was my first expression. That yeah. was my first um, experience of seeing somebody else possessed. And and did her language change? You mentioned her posture. Just everything. Just looked. Did it, did it feel different? You know, to be honest, I can't remember anything about anything she may have said, but I, what really struck me was, was how her face changed and her posture changed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really didn't know how to, res to respond and how to act. Unfortunately, there, there were other people there who did, you know. We, we uh, and that was kind of unusual at the time because um, in Wicca, uh, or rather in, in Wicca has, as I experienced it, they kind of make a distinction between what they called overshadowing and possession. And overshadowing is, as I understood it at the time, is this idea that um, somebody performs an invocation of a, or, or a, of a god or a goddess, you know, into the body of, of a recipient, a, you know, a priest or a priestess. And that person feels the power of that deity come into them and speaks with the voice of that deity, but they retain, uh, if you like, a, a consciousness of, of themselves and a sense of their own agency and volition. Mm. And that's kind of different to, to how full possession, I think, is theorized, where, you know, your sense of agency and your sense of consciousness of being a person just goes away and something else comes in. And mm. um, I, I saw this ritual being 
enacted over and over again, uh, usually in groups where the, the, the focus is on the person who's the recipient of the power of the deity. Um, they would often give us a set speech, which I often thought was strange because it was very much a rote speech. Um, and then they would do things like a blessing or, or you know, charge a chalice or something like that. Um, and on occasion, other people in the groups kind of like, not became possessed, but also, also became very, yeah, overshadowed, if you like. And occasionally people wouldn't notice this because all the, all the kind of like focus will be on the, the main celebrant of the ritual. But I have seen other people get overshadowed by this power as well. And that was kind of interesting. Um, and that, yeah, that was my first experiences of, of, of possession. It was, it was rare that somebody would get fully possessed. Mm. Um, usually it was, it was this kind of like overshadowing, this kind of like partial possession that went on. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the bit that I find really interesting hearing that perspective is, um, I mean, as, as, as you know so from some of our previous conversations, like I'm very new to this world and, and, I've, and I've kind of come through it through, through, through travel and photography um, yeah. and, um, and photographing subject matter like, like, like the gin. So I've, I've always kind of looked at possession as a thing through uh, like the Abrahamic way of seeing it, that it's mm -hmm. this, essentially it is a, a bad thing. It'll only bring um, ruin to, to an individual. But it's a very seems to be a totally different thing for in 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 pagan and, and magical circles that actually it can bring a lot of positivity and positive things. Well, it, it's interesting you mention that because um, my memories of of getting into magic and the occult in the late seventies and early eighties, there was actual very little literature uh, about possession, and I think it was it was very much tied up with notions of of um, if you like, primitive magic, um, strange religious cults. Um, and there was, there was an idea circulating that, that kind of like full possession was a kind of sorcery. It was low magic. It wasn't something that proper initiates did. Um, and I think that's a carryover from the 19th century. Uh, if, if, you, if you look at a lot of kind of like, so like quasi-theosophical writings from the 19th century, you find this idea that possession is bad. And I think that, in turn, is a is a reflection, sorry, a reflection of the theosophical antipathy to spiritualism. Because, mm. you know, one of the main critiques of spiritualism that the theosophists engaged with was this idea that oh, you just left yourself open for any you know passing spirit to possess you, and they thought that was a, that they thought that was a terribly bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that you that spiritualists were leaving themselves open to possession by, you know, anything that went floating past, whether it was a, a dead person or an astral shell or so forth. And I think in the, certainly in the late seventies and early eighties, there was quite kind of an antipathy towards possession. And, you know, there might've been anthropological and scientific literature about it, but I, I didn't really engage with that. Then. Mm -hmm. One of the bits that I really enjoyed in, and it was a really pleasant surprise in, in uh, Heinz Varieties was uh, your, your your essay on uh, Lop Sang Rampa, um, yeah. and kind of on this on the subject of channeling and and um, this was this this was the channeling structure around Lop Sang Rampa, um, mm. and I, w I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on you know on on, on channeling as, as well. Uh, you know, is it like a like a subset of possession? Um, you know, people seem to be able to switch it on and off. But um... I, I think there are a, a wide range of experiences, certainly within you know Western occultism, that are kind of like possession uh, in different grades. One is this Wiccan notion of overshadowing that I was talking about earlier, and channeling might well be um, another form of, of a kind of a light form of possession, where. I forget how it works exactly, but the idea is that somebody goes into a light trance and starts coming out with all this stuff about being a reincarnated priestess and Atlantis or somebody from the far future. You know, that there's, there's a, I think there's elements of confabulation sometimes with that. Mm -hmm. In the early 80s, I worked in a psychiatric hospital for a while. And I remember very well talking to this 
patient with a doctor and they was they were saying to the patient well you know what did you do last year Jim and he said oh I was building a bridge in Japan and we thought oh that's really interesting knowing very well that he hasn't actually been out of the hospital you know for the last 20 years mm. and he gave forth this extremely detailed and very personal account of of how he was involved in this bridge building in Japan and it was all kind of like confabulation but you know he really believed it and I think there's an element sometimes with with these kind of experiences, there is an element of confabulation. Hmm. But they're also kind of, they're group experiences. I think that the it's not just about an individual entering an altered state of consciousness and, and coming out with something strange or, or fabulous. I think they're actually mediated by uh, one's circumstances and one's surroundings, um, and by culture, of course, as well. Channelings, um, is interesting because you get, you know, there, there, there were particular people who were who were almost had copyright, and I think there was actually a big copyright case of, of uh, I think it was uh, someone called Knight who was channeling this entity, I think called Ramtha, and then somebody else started channel, channeling Ramtha, and there was a court case about it. David Knight, I think it was, and I think there was actually a court case. Of, I, I might be wrong about that, but there was some kind of legal to do over who had the right to channel this entity <laughs> it, it there always does seem to be kind of an, an an element of i don't know just sort of absurdity to to some channeling um i mean yeah. the bit that you mentioned there it, it there always tend to be kind of you know someone from the the, the philadian brotherhood or or, or some such mm. you know, are 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 <laughs> Our guardians from another galaxy, or, or something like that, to bring that kind of save the earth type message, and uh, that tends to occur quite regularly. What 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 it reminds me of a little is kind of some of the the, the early encounters with with UFOs in uh, or yeah. the, the pilots of of the UFO knots, which is a popular mm. term. Probably. Where it's the same thing, like in the forties, they were you know from Venus, from Mars. And then as we yeah. got a little bit closer to those planets and knew a little bit more about them, the, the aliens got further and further away and became more, presented themselves as being biologically far different. And it, yeah. well, that kind of, that's kind of interesting because, sorry to jump in there, but you, I've just, again, I thought, I'm thinking about theosophy because, the, you know, the theosophists had this idea of the interplane masters. Um, Again, they they they're always in really inaccessible places. So a lot of the, some of the theosophical interplane masters were fr was were from Tibet, which is at the mm -hmm. time was inaccessible. You know, uh, you mentioned Lob Sang Rampa earlier, and of course, Lob Sang Rampa's whole thing is he was a you know the avatar or the reincarnation or the walk-in of somebody from Tibet, which was basically inaccessible at the time and remains so, of course. Mm. And yeah. I, I think that's sometimes a, an interesting feature about some of these kind of experiences is that the because of geographical or, or if you like, cosmic location, they're very difficult to verify. Hmm. Yeah, it, it really is interesting. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's so hard to place when you look at that channeling stuff because it does seem to be a little, hmm. a bit like we're being played with a bit. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 very hard to put your finger on kind of whether or not it's it's I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but whether it's a serious thing or not, whether kind of it is just a trickster element behind it, um, as you say, that kind of idea of of like a court case coming out of who can channel entity is it just seems absolutely absurd, yeah. you know, uh, and. Um, how does that affect the people's lives who are involved? Well, I, I think that the people who who are who are engaged with it, they you know they really do believe it. Hmm. Uh, it's just it seems ludicrous to everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think an, an interesting element of that is, you know, when somebody becomes possessed by an entity and speaks to you, is how seriously do you, as a participant in that event, take that message? You know, and I, I think that that's always an interesting question. Um, and I, I was going to talk about spiritualism later on because mm. I think in um, spiritualistic and mediumistic events that's a similar thing to possession going on mm. and I remember many years ago 
this is when I worked for Psychic Press, um, being taken to a medium who was, um, if you like, channeling uh, the personalities of, of dead film stars, which was very interesting. You know, we got various dead film stars, mm. the names don't spring to mind. But at the end, they actually channeled somebody who wasn't dead. Mm. Nobody wow. said anything at the time, but you know, afterwards I was with I was with the editor of Psychic News, and he said, "He said, hang on, Phil, that that last one wasn't dead, you know." Mm. I said, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, because obviously everybody thought he was dead, but yeah. he turned out not to be. You know, uh, that's really interesting. And, and I think a lot of the that's an interesting dimension to, to these experiences is when you experience that is is how seriously you take it, you know, and I, I think that's it's not always a straightforward. I mean, you know, if, if I'm in a ritual and somebody is channeling their deity and it's a deity I have a great deal of respect for and personal relationship and they say something to me like, oh, you know, you have to give up your job and, you know, become my devotee and live in a cave. I think I probably wouldn't. Yeah, and I think that's really good advice, you know, like to, to you know, to, to be wary of what spirits say, you know, that um, yeah. we don't really know what... Well, I mean, from from my perspective, the reason kind of this whole podcast exists is, you know, mm. to try and understand what these things are, uh, or what the experiences are, what it means. You you mentioned before about some of your um, some experimental theatre group. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, um, this was in the in the mid eighties when I was psyche nursing in in Nottingham, and uh, I met up with these people who are doing. Kind of like improv drama, and uh, this is where I encountered the works of a guy called Keith Johnston. He wrote a fantastic book called Impro, uh, which some of the people in the group sort of gave me, and I was we were kind of like really wow, this is amazing stuff. Um, and Johnston has this idea about masks and possession, um, and in in his in his kind of like very basic system, you've got two types of masks. You've got half face masks where the mouth is free and they can speak and you've got full face masks where the mouth isn't free and they have to rely on, on if you like, on body language. Uh, and we did some experimental work based on his ideas. And we'd start off making masks. And these were not like character masks. Or, you know, they weren't masks of, of, of like Egyptian deities or anything like that. The idea was that you just took a bunch of materials, almost made um, a mask, I don't know, not quite out of intuition, but just working with materials and seeing what came out. And that was your mask. And a big part of Johnson's ideas that we really liked was this idea that you have to train masks to speak, that they're like children. Oh, cool. um, so we kind of like, you know, we, we always had like a play box of rags and toys and rattles and things like that. And then people were encouraged to put the masks on. And that was a form of possession. But it was it was a, uh, the idea was that you had a bunch of masks in a room, either full face masks or half face masks. And then you had a person who was the master of ceremonies who kind of like guided and cajoled the masks and, you know, encouraged them to play with the objects in the play box. Um, and, and gradually, uh, over time, they built up distinct personalities. And we actually found that you could, that the, the personality that, that was uh, related to a particular mass could actually be, it wasn't related to the person. Hmm. But there was, there was one mass that was, it had kind of like a silver face and like really bug eyes. I forget which one was had done it, but it was almost like a Frankensteinian figure. And, all the other masks were afraid of it. Wow. Because um, it, its movements were really jerky and it, it yeah. was very kind of like aggressive or it, it came across as aggressive. Mm. So the other masks, and I think some of the people who weren't masks who were watching this were kind of like, whoa, what the hell is this thing? But the person who was wearing the mask almost reported this feeling, well, you know, why are you all backing away from me? I just want to be friends. And we found that those, those personae seem to attach themselves to the masks, not to the people who were wearing them. That was really interesting because that, that was the first time I came across, um, you know, the idea of possession in theatre. And I, I read some accounts of, of actors who, you know, got so much into their character that they could do things that their character, character could do 
um, there was one guy whose character was like an expert juggler and he said he couldn't juggle for toffee when he was not in character but when he was in character and yeah. if you're like possessed by that character he could juggle you know and that whole phase in the mid 80s was really interesting for me because I got in interested in the whole kind of like um, the theatrical approach to possession if you like mm -hmm. and looking at acting techniques and that was something that later on when I sort of like went more into chaos magic I wanted to bring a lot of those techniques in into what we were doing. Um, I mean I suppose that naturally brings us on to kind of your, your work in the, in the 90s and uh, how this work I guess had a thread through your chaos magic uh, mm. work. Yeah well in the chaos magic groups I was in possession was a, a central thing and I think that was one of the things that almost distinguished chaos magic as it started to um, gain traction in the UK was that people weren't afraid of doing possession rituals and again we've you know th there's there's one um, ritual I think it's in Psychonaut the Mass of Chaos B which is a Baphomet ritual um, and again and what, what we found was that you, you get different kind of kinds of Baphomets depending on who's doing the ritual right so you get very kind of like passive manifestations of bath Baphomets with somebody who's perhaps being a bit um, nervous and then people are very confident you get very aggressive and very kind of like you know I'm here to tell you what to do kind of Baphomets uh, you get quite scary Baphomets mm. and I started the, the there were a couple of things about this that really interested me and one was that again this idea that it's not just about one person being possessed it's about the whole environment and the whole setup of the ritual and you know everything from people's feelings and expectations to actually the you know the physical location you know because i think if and you again you have different sh shades of possession you have people who kind of feel empowered by the the vitality and if you like the energy of the deity but still have a sense of volition and their own agency and then people who see who report that that just goes away and they're not conscious at all of of what they've done or you know what they've said or or during the ritual until they've been brought back mm -hmm. which was in some cases uh this idea of banishing with laughter which i don't think actually always works or in extreme cases of throwing a bucket of water on someone's head and something that at, at one point in the in the mid 90s i got into the idea that well can you train people to be possessed because I started to think, well, yeah, it, it's it, it's one of those things that you can only really do by doing it. But other ways of breaking it down and actually trying to, okay, this is what it feels like to start to go into that process. Can we actually give people, if you like, a kind of taste or opportunity of that? Hmm. Um, I did some workshops around that. I can't actually remember what I did now, but the idea was to try and you know, get people not to be scared of having that experience of when you, you feel that you're no longer in control of your body, when your, your volition and your agency have kind of like gone away. Mm -hmm. And that was one part of it. And the other part was, if you like, grounding and safekeeping. Mm -hmm. Because increasingly I was finding personally that for me, possession is a very, very intense experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, looking after somebody who's coming out of a intense possession trance, I think, was something that wasn't I felt wasn't getting as much attention as it could do right so for, for me kind of like okay because what you sometimes find is that somebody who's gone into that intense state of consciousness is that um coming out of it can be difficult right sometimes people want to stay in it and, and kind of almost like resist mm -hmm. coming back into ordinary consciousness if you like so um and then you know it's not like you can look at people around a ritual and go okay hands up who hasn't come back yet mm -hmm. you know you mm -hmm. need to be able to look at somebody and look at their posture and look at how they're responding to other people and go okay maybe it's better to have just just somebody who can sit near them quietly and just say are you okay is friends we can right. do for you you know yeah um so i got into that idea that okay uh, as much as it, it's important to try and give people a kind of like starter experience of what it's like to be possessed and because i think it's very easy not you, that you, you you almost kind of like catch yourself going into that state and then jump out of it because it's scary because it's weird mm. um but also to give people um 
a more nuanced understanding of grounding and safekeeping. I mean, th these are things that people take, you know, for granted nowadays. I think in contemporary magical circles, at least, I think there's a lot more nuanced um, approach to these kind of experiences. But at the time, I wasn't aware of that. No. And I think these these are skills that groups have to almost develop. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. But, no, particularly if, if if possession isn't a cultural thing, hmm. you know, which I think for a lot of us in the West, it, it just isn't. Yeah, correct. Yeah, you know, yeah. unless you until you start to look at analogs like channeling or or you know, um, yeah. virtualistic yeah. mediumship things like that, which I think there are similar similarities with. Yeah, that that makes an awful lot of sense. I, I, I suppose out of curiosity, I mean. Have you ever seen something or, or along the lines of where, you know, someone's actually struggled to shift a deity or the deity kind of wants to hang around? Um, yes, yeah. quite often, yeah. Um, and I've experienced that myself. It's a kind of, it, it's, it's difficult to describe, but it's almost like you feel um, you don't want to come back to the world. Mm. It's almost kind of like, mm, yeah, I'm, yeah I, I still want to be, the deity right and there's almost sometimes like an, a, a dual consciousness that you, you you feel yourself to be this other being but also you you're trying to come back to the normal world and that can be a struggle sometimes right um and it's i think you have what you have to do or what i found myself doing with the groups i was working with is, is okay how do we manage that experience um, there, there was one famous incident, not in any of the groups I was involved with, but it's kind of like a friend of a friend story, uh, where somebody got possessed by a deity. I think it might have been one of the the, the Voodoo Loire, and, and ran up a tree. And, and you know they had to spend the whole night a looking for this guy who was up a tree somewhere, and then getting him out of the tree whilst <laughs> or like coaxing the deity out of the tree uh, because they thought, well, you know, if the deity leaves him while he's in the tree, he's going to be stuck up a tree. Sure, sure. That's hilarious. Yeah. It, it's really interesting how these kind of just bizarre occurrences happen. Um, because, I, you know, as I was saying, kind of at the start of this conversation, that like m most people from a kind of a, a, who are not in these type of circles from a standard Western point of view, like you said, like culturally, there's no language for this. There was maybe like, you know, 40 years ago in, in Ireland, you'd still have that kind of talk about, well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a problem. The priest needs to go to bless the house or bless an individual. Yeah. You know, the subtext is, you know, somebody's, there's an intrusion going on of some description. But mm -hmm. it, it's, it's never kind of, it doesn't have that kind of, uh, it never be perceived in a way where something bizarre or slightly comical um, happens. You know, it's still something that someone has to deal with. But mm. always has that, well, it's the, the, the binary Abrahamic thing, you know, well, it's not God, it's evil. Yeah. It is interesting to talk to people from different cultures who don't see it like that at all. Mm. That actually possession is uh, a positive thing. It's, it's a blessing of sorts. Uh, I mean, particularly when we're, you know, when we've been historically talking about um, Tantra and, um, and Indian culture as a whole. We spoke about uh, Kali, and you've written some really uh, fantastic pieces in, in, in High Varieties about your experiences with Kali. And I, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, a couple of years ago, I, I did a lecture at Trebles on, on Tantra and possession. And the idea for that was really came up because when people think about Tantra, they, well, A, they think about sex, but they don't think about possession. And mm. um, possession is a huge you know, element of Tantra and of Indian religion in general. Well, I think this is the, the interesting thing is that in the West we have this mindset of oh possession is kind of like over there and it's it's, it's kind of like almost like a, a, a colonial hangover that possession is done by other cultures and we don't necessarily recognize it in our own culture. I mean you know Christian snake handling um, and if, in fact if you look in the Bible you'll, you'll find you know various um, Christian leaders arguing against possession because it upsets people. Possession is there in our own Christian heritage, mm -hmm. but it's almost kind of like we've, we've kind of like, you know, left it on one side. But if you look, you know, if you look in other parts of the world, then, you know, possession is just the way people deal with things. You know, it's, it's part of the culture, it's accepted. Mm -hmm. um, what interested me about 
possession in Tantra was, you know, particularly in a lot of the early texts, you have this huge uh, emphasis on becoming possessed by the deity. That is the object of a lot of, of early Tantric ritual, is that you take on the, the, the character, you know, you, how can I put it? A lot of early Tantric ritual is about putting yourself into a, an emotional state that's associated with a particular deity to the extent that the, you know, the, if you like, the ontological division between you and the deity disappears. You right. become the deity. That gets, you know, aestheticized over time. But a, a lot of the early tantric rituals are um, about deliberately inducing in yourself a state of fear or fury or anger or lust in order that you take on the power of, the, of a particular deity. But again, it's, it's, it's something that unless you, you know, you specialize in, in looking at tantric literature, you're not going to get a handle on. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's incredible stuff. I, was, I, think, I think I was at that lecture. And um, Kali specifically, because I, I found that really interesting reading your book, because when we talk about, um, like, again, like cultural reference points, I think you, you mentioned in yeah. the book, you didn't have much of a cultural reference points for Kali, but, but she showed up you could say to it in, in a lot of ways has, has led you through the, the Tantra work. Um, yes, it, it was, it was definitely my, my early experiences with Carly that, that led me to get an interest in Tantra because, uh, you know, as I said, uh, I was having these in the, in the book, I was having these very intense dreams with Car about Carly, you know, um, meeting her in a cremation gown. Mm. And I, I can't say that I, I hadn't heard about Carly. I, I'd probably read about her in, you know, Kenneth Grant's books or something like that. But I had no kind of uh, particular interest in, in matters Indian or Tantric. Yeah. Yeah, suddenly this, this you know, Indian goddess turns up out of nowhere in my dreams, like night after night. It's almost kind of like she's, she's calling me, you know. Mm. Um, that, that experience, if you like, put the hook in me. It's not quite. I mean, I, I I remember years ago having a, having a, a similar thing with um, Maman Bridget, who's one of the Voodoo Luat, again turning up in my dreams and me just going, oh yeah, well whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, so some of those experiences don't seem to create an emotional resonance, but yeah, others do. See, Maman Bridget as well. Like that's another weird character where mm. there's something about Maman Bridget. Um, and again, like Kali, that they just they they leak outside their cultures, um, and yeah. they do it by themselves. It's it's a it's a really strange thing. Like Mammon Bridget is a, a, a very strange character in that mm. you know, she's white, she's got red hair. There seems to be some connection to Saint Bridget, and uh, the goddess mm. Bridget, you know, white with red hair, goddess of fire. But yet, yeah. there's no cultural relationship between Haiti. And and Ireland, you know, it was it wasn't a a, a colony of of the British yeah. Empire, French colony. It was it's just this, well, happened. I mean, this is this is the interesting thing, and and I think this you know leads to a lot of argument, is that you know nowadays it's it's a big part of the or it's just, if you like it's a subset of the cold cultural appropriation debate. Can you have a relationship with deities that are not in your culture? And of course we do, we do all the time, you know. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I think that's, that's, you know, people get into terrible arguments about this is, oh, well, you know, if, if you're an English person, you know, and you know what the English did in India, da, 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 uh, is it culturally appropriative for you to, you know, be working with an Indian deity? Yeah. Well, yeah, arguably it is, but, you know, the, the whole problem, with, I think, with that cultural appropriation debate is, is that, um, a lot of, if you like, magical and religious deities don't stay in one place. Yeah, I found it really interesting that Kali reached out to you like that. Like, um, and one of the reasons that I found it really interesting reading through is, is that how I found myself in cremation grounds in India, um, yeah. you know, looking for the Aghori, um, and kind of having that moment where you kind of, just, I'm hyper aware all of a sudden, this is what I'm doing, rather than kind of like yeah. being concentrating on the photographs all of a sudden i'm kind of hyper aware of like i'm here in a cremation ground photographing you know um bits of dead bodies yeah exactly yeah bits of dead bodies and people drinking whiskey out of skulls and, and what have you and um 
you, you kind of get the point, how did I get here? But there's something around the symbol of Kali that, and um, Shiva as well for me, that mm. they have a resonance, you know, and they had a resonance far before I kind of understood really anything about them. Like, I didn't mm. have the same dream experiences, but I did have a drive and I go, I want to know more about that. There was some sort of instinctive uh, hook yeah. that, that, that pulled me there. Um, I mean, in, in a way, uh, major deities like Kali, you could almost say that they are transnational deities, mm, mm, you know, mm. um, because there's the, I mean, there's scads and scads and scads of material written about Carly by Westerners mm. that is, you know, completely different to how Carly is perceived and thought about in India. Yeah. You know, um, Carly has been taken up as a, as a, if you like a, a symbol of women's liberation in the West, which mm. I think is not quite how, at least how she's seen in traditional India. Right. So, you know, there, some deities uh, that become extremely popular, I think, get this, you know, it's kind of like yoga. Yoga is, you know, we now think of yoga as a transnational phenomena, mm -hmm. rather than the, something that can be traced back. Yes, obviously it has a historical connection to India, but it's grown beyond that. Mm -hmm. And I think deities can do that as well. Yeah. You know, they become really popular and they change and they shift. And, you know, if you, if you look at the history of... of particular deities in India, you'll find that textual sources and, and if you like, material representations of a deity from like an early period, you know, change over time, which again is, is, is really interesting. And it kind of, for me, it points to, again, the idea that our experiences of possession and many other things are culturally mediated at, at some level. I think they have to be, you know, right. culturally mediated and by, and further mediated by you know, how we're doing things in a particular group mm -hmm. and by our environment. That queer Baphomet possession I did that I, I talk about in, in Heinz Varieties, that was really significant for me because one thing I, I, uh, uh, the, I think QPC did, Queer Pagan Camp did really well, was they had a really massive emphasis on safekeeping and grounding for people. They used to do lots of trans dance type ritual where people were, were encouraged to become, you know, if you like, possessed by the dance. Right. And they actually had people who were, if you like, not exactly trained, but experienced in, in watching people and making sure they were okay. So when we approached, when we um, were working out how, how, you know, how are we are going to do this Baphomet possession? Um, there was a friend of mine who, who was at camp and I, I'd known her for 20 years and we'd done lots of ritual work together. And I said, look, you know, uh, I think I'm going to go really deep. I've got a kind of sense that this is going to be a, a very strong possession. And I just want you to look after me. And knowing that there was somebody there who I could absolutely rely on, I think actually deepened my ability to, to let go. Mm -hmm. And if you like, go into a full possession where I was not conscious at all of, of being in the body and just letting something else in. Because I had absolute trust that right. this person would be, would be able to take care of me. Uh, also, during the ritual, they had, they had people come out, not coming too close, but again, watching what the possessed body was doing and making sure it didn't hurt itself. And it was interesting because I've done a lot of possession rituals in, you know, in people's living rooms mm -hmm. um, and in concrete bunkers. Yeah. But this time we were doing it on grass. Mm -hmm. And I think if, you know, with the best will in the world, if you're going, if you allowing yourself to be possessed by an entity in a concrete bunker on a concrete floor, you're still going to have some residue about not hurling yourself around or not letting the, the possessing entity hurl you around because you're going to get damaged. But right. on a grass floor, um, again, I, I could let go any kind of like inhibiting um, fears about what was going to happen to my body. Mm -hmm. And that possession that I described um in that ritual was was really one of the most intense in, um possession experience that i've ever had and i think a lot of it was to do with the environment and the, f the fact that i knew that people would look after my body as it were yeah and would help bring me out of the trance mm -hmm. uh, it, it seemed to take a very long time uh and would look after me afterwards i mean I, I, you know 
Um, after that ritual, there was a, a, apparently a, a massive party, and I was kind of like just sequestered in somebody's tent, being fed fed hot chocolate and and yeah, and so yeah. I was in a in yeah emotionally state after that. And and uh, while while you were in in that state, like uh, at that particular procession, like. Mm. Like what you you mentioned earlier on, when you said you, there's there's a sense of kind of like there's all two consciousnesses in the one body, but there's not necessarily one dominant over the other. But when you're going, yeah. I mean, how does the deity or how does Baphomet in this case communicate with you, or do they communicate with you? Or, you know, you're, do you hear there uh, kind of? I, I I this again is an interesting thing because there's there's different cultural expectations about how. You know, in in some cultures, the you know the idea is that you get possessed, and the person who's who's been ridden has no memory whatsoever. Yeah, of it. Uh, I've had that a couple of times. Sometimes I've had total memory. It's like, like this kind of like double consciousness thing, or you just feel tremendously empowered. You often, I felt taller, or somehow taller, or somehow broader, or somehow more. Um, present in the room in, in that kind of double state of consciousness with that state it was almost like memories like like film clip memories like a, like a broken film like, I had like a freeze frame of this and a freeze frame of that yeah. um, and I was I was discussing this afterwards with one of the people who'd been watching me and I said you know at, at one point I have this memory that I was I was surrounded by trees or I, you know, I was perceiving that I was I was surrounded by trees, and I, I said, "What was going on there?" And she said, "Well, you were on the you were crawling around the floor, mm. and and kind of like f feeling people's legs who were stood nearby." I said, "Okay, I thought that was trees." And there's another another if you like film clip of memory where there were a lot of bright lights, mm -hmm. and again, I I explained this to the person, one of the people who were was the safe keepers and they said yeah um there was a lot of bright candles on the altar and you or baphomet seemed to be completely fascinated and went and actually tried to you know we had to run forward and, and take the candles away because you were trying to put your hands in the flame wow so i mean like it, it, it says like a total altered consciousness yeah yeah but you know what what's interesting i think is that you you get different gradations of, of that state mm -hmm. and you you can't always you can't always predict, I think. And again, I think this is a difficulty for people who are not used to that experience, mm. is you, you can't always predict how deep you're going to go. Mm. Um, I remember years ago, I was doing this massacre house B in, in, uh, in Austria, in a concrete bunker. Mm. And uh, one of the things on the altar is they had this huge um, glass bowl. Uh, it was like, you know, just this solid piece of almost it seemed to me like this huge piece of glass bowl and i kept looking at this as, as they were setting up for the ritual and i was thinking shit i hope i don't drop that um and what actually happened during the ritual it, it, the, the idea of the ritual is you get possessed by baphomet and and again this is an interesting element to ritual to this kind of possession ritual because you know the, there are almost like free form possession rituals where you don't know what's going to happen and and the, the queer pagan camp Baphomet one was definitely free form. Mm -hmm. um, there was, you know, once the possession took place, there was very little structure. In this Chaos Magic, Chaos Mass B, even though the person is possessed, they're supposed to, you know, follow the ritual procedure. Mm -hmm. And in this particular instance, um, me, Baphomet, went to the altar, picked up this um, huge glass bowl and started taking it around to give people a, a drink of, you know, Baphomet charged red wine or whatever mm. was in it. And at some point, uh, the pedestal fell off the off the glass. It just came apart and all this wine kind of like came spiraling out. And I've, I apparently just like lifted it off my head and started laughing demonically. One question as well I'd like to ask as well is that after your experiences with, um, with Baphomet, uh, mm. And, and possession from Baphomet. What, if anything, changed in you? Um, that's a that's a real interesting question, and I think it's. Hmm, I'm trying to think how to talk about that. 
let me let me talk about Akali possession because mm-hmm. I think I can get close to what I want to say about this. Um, I did a Carly possession one time. And I th- I, again, I think it was at QPC. And afterwards, it felt to me like she was very close. It's almost kind of like she was walking beside me. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't actually... I'd come out of the, if you like, the immediate possession state, but I still felt this kind of like physical closeness to this presence of Carly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that lasted for several days. And then eventually it kind of like drew off. And I, I, it's like a lot of ritual things, kind of like you don't do one ritual and it changes you. Well, it could happen. You could do a ritual and it changes you forever. But certainly you have this idea in Tantra that every ritual action is about you dissolving the difference between you and the deity, who is, is it your Ishtvad Devata, your, your chosen deity. So if you're continually um, trying to identify with Shiva or with um, Lalita or Kali, then every ritual action is about, you know, dissolving that distance between you so that you realize that you are one with the goddess and she is you and, you know, she is everything kind of thing. And I think what ritual can do progressively is, again, difficult to put into words, but it's, it's almost kind of like your sense of ego boundary can become more fluid, okay. but not necessarily in a bad way. Um, I think the rituals can, this, these kind of possession rituals can make you more vulnerable or at least more open to nuances of consciousness. Right. That otherwise you might not have been um aware of right and, and again it, it i think a lot depends on the cultural expectations that you have mm-hmm. um about the ritual you know and whether they come from being involved in a particular religious or magical tradition or just you know your the stuff you've grown up with anyway right um i mean i've, I've seen people uh, say chaos mass bees um as 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 one person famously put it respond to the the person possessed by a baphomet like he was drunk who was talking to them at a bus stop and they couldn't get away from him you know they were really kind of like shying away and oh fucking girl what's going on there you know <laughs> and as, again i think that's that's interesting in the west because i think up until fairly recently there's not been much of a magic unless you're involved in something like a, a shamanic tradition that does have a strong uh possession element to it or you know the revival of scythe in in the northern heathen traditions um i think there's a, almost like possession is under theorized or n- not so much under theorized but the practice of it, it hasn't been you know developed and i think that is you know something that's probably gaining ground now. I think well I'd like to think that people had a much more developed mm. um idea of how to approach possession in ritual. Yeah. Uh and you know how to manage the experience from from start to finish than perhaps I did when I was, you know, making my first steps with it in the in the eighties and nineties. Yeah it, it, it does I'd sound... like to think so. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah okay. But it, it does sound like it it needs almost that um like the when you hear about kind of ayahuasca ceremonies, when the the I think uh, the, the 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 shaman leading the uh, ceremony is just is guiding the participants through it mm. a lot more, and I, I think that from what I've heard of the rituals, like singing people through it, um, it feels like that there's start from what you're describing through from the seventies through to the uh, to the queer uh, queer baphomet possession that. Mm. The, a development of uh, like safeguarding for people going through the mm-hmm. session experience, and I guess that the, the good practice and the, the technology around it is is evolving. Um, yeah, I think so. I think it's it's interesting to see that though that, that the technology is is starting to evolve, the practice is starting to evolving and getting more refined. Mm. And uh, it might be that bit as as the. I think that's that's possibly because people people are more engaging with with um, you know more possession oriented traditions like Santeria and Lakumi and Fufu and so forth. Yeah, 
um, and you know those are in turn um, influencing, if you like, general general models of practice. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, there's so much to learn in in, in those incredible mm. And I, I suppose to 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 wrap up, unless there's anything else you'd like to add. Um, you know, where is the, the best pe place for people to find your work, uh, to find out more about you? Um, well, I have a blog, uh, http slash slash enfolding.org, where I try and put all my latest rambles and wibbles. Uh, my new book, <laughs> as you said at the start, is, is now available from all good bookshops or direct from original Falcon Press. Mm -hmm. And uh, there will be more work coming out. At the, at the moment, I'm I'm looking at um, a trilogy of books I put out in the mid '80s, um, three small booklets on shamanism, and I've recently kind of like been digging out a lot of my magical diaries and notebooks from that period. And I'm what I'm hoping to do is put those three books together with a lot with some material that actually never made it out from my uh, workbooks. Um, and some contextual essays, and hopefully I'll be releasing that at some point in the future. And um, and the lectures you so, made, yeah, on uh, on um, the lectures you did at, at Treadwells. You you planning a series on that as well? Some of the lectures I've done in the past few years at Treadwells are going to be re-recorded and made available as online audio lectures. So that's another project that's ongoing. Fantastic. So yeah, watch this space basically. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, well, thank you so much for your time, Phil. It's been a pleasure to talk to you as always. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll hear again from you soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, truly interesting insights from, from Phil. Um, if you want to find out more about Phil's work, again, there's the uh, link for the book in the show notes, his most recent book, but check out his, his, his catalogue of, of work as well. I mean, it's it's really, really interesting stuff. Um, you can also find more from Phil uh, on his blog unfolding.org and follow him on Twitter, where he has, in my own opinion, the best dream diaries on the interwebs. Anyway, that's enough for me for now. Thanks for listening. Talk soon. Mm -hmm.